May I ask you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Uh, we return uh, to the study of Romans 5 through 8 that we began back actually in September. We've gone through 12 messages at this point through chapters 5 and 6. And the uh, overarching theme of Romans 5 through 8, at least the title of the series that uh, I've given is Life and Hope in Christ. And uh, hang on, because we're going to do like a 12-message recap in 60 to 90 seconds. All right, so here we go. We have peace with God. That was chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Because Christ has provided the gift of righteousness for all who are joined to him by faith. That's chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Which led to the question, should superabounding grace lead us to sin more? And Paul's answer is never, because we have died to sin, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 6, and we've been made alive to God, chapter 6, verses 8 through 11, and sin is no longer our master, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Instead, we have been made servants of righteousness, so we should live like it, chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. What God has done for us and in us and will do for us leads to eternal life. Chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. So there's like 12 hours down to 60 seconds, all right? And, and it's really uh, crucial to understand what Paul's doing between chapters 5 and chapters 8. Really, chapters 6 and 7 are anticipating objections and wrestling with them. That's one of the things I love about Paul. He, he is very, uh, very deliberate about stating truths, anticipating objections, and then just working through them. And, and you follow the text of Scripture, and, and God is giving us the answers to the most important questions. Right? We might come up with other questions, but clearly, these are the questions that matter to God, because he had Paul write the answers to them for us, right? So they're the ones that are timeless, right? They, they applied in the first century for the Romans. They apply in the 21st century for us today. The things that are timeless about these issues are what the Word of God lays out for us so that we can think clearly about them because they're the same kinds of problems uh, that have, have uh, percolated among professing Christians and the opponents of Christianity uh, for centuries. Right? When, when someone says, listen, we are made right with God not on the basis of anything that we do, but by the righteousness of Christ. And once we've received that righteousness, we can never be cut off from him. A, a possible response to that is to run full steam into sin. Right? And that's been the case. Uh, I mean, it's been the case on and off throughout church history. Right? People run away from legalism to libertine life. I can sin with easy remission. I can do whatever I want because of grace. 
right? And so Paul confronts that and confronts that all the way through chapter 6. But the other side of the table, the issue of the law and legalism, he actually hasn't picked back up, even though he mentioned it. And so the question comes, so so what about the law? If we're free from the law, isn't that going to lead to rampant sin as well? I mean, look at chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, where, where he raises that question, or, or makes statements that raise the question. 6.14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Which then leads him to the question, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And again, his answer, like in verse 2, is may it never be. That should not be the response that we have. And so in 6.15, he starts addressing this question about should we sin because we're not under the law? But in verses 15 to 23, he doesn't mention the law. He just talks about sin. And that in fact, when God saved us, he made us servants of righteousness And because we're servants of righteousness, that should guard and protect us against sin. But he hasn't abandoned the question, right? Remember, there's no verses and chapters when Paul wrote this letter, right? So the shift from chapter 6 to chapter 7 looks hard in our Bibles because we look down and we see this big 7 and we think, okay, something new. But it's actually, he's still carrying on the same thought. He's answering the question, shall we go on and sin because we're not under the law? And all of chapter 7 addresses that question until we come to chapter 8. And chapter 7 is why I've never preached this part of Romans before. All right, so it's it's difficult. It's, It's a challenging passage and and uh, Bible scholars have debated the second part of the chapter for centuries. I mean, people with much more brain wattage than I go back and forth against each other. On it. All right, so so that part of it is going to be challenging. But here's the good news: the first part is pretty clear. All right, so we're going to take the nice, clear part. At least clear to me. You may be going, what? All right, look at, if you would, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, because it's important to get this foundation before we start to wade into the deeper end of the pool in the weeks ahead, the Lord willing. Chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which are aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, 
so that we might serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What Paul does here is really comes back to that question, if we're not under the law, should we continue in sin? And his answer, all the way back in chapter 6, is may it never be. Right, And that's partly because of what God did for us. We, we are now servants of righteousness, and, and that has broken the power of sin. We live in that way. But now he's, he comes back over to the question of the law and says, well, so isn't the law the anticipated objective? Isn't the law the way we break free from sin? I mean, don't we need the law to keep us from sinning? And Paul's going to answer that, as he does a number of places, and that raises, I mean, the reason why it gets complicated when you work through it is you're starting to deal with very different eras of God's dispensations. The Mosaic Law, ruling the people of Israel, the church being under a different rule of life, and how those all tie together, and comparing this era to that era, and and what's going on with us. So there's lots of stuff that gets woven through it. But the basic principle in verses 1 through 6 is to show us that the law was not actually the answer for the problem of sin. And what we have now in Christ is actually the answer for the problem with sin. And Paul approaches this in a way that starts with a principle and then illustrates that principle. Verse 1 is the principle stated that you're only under the law while you're alive. Right? Once you die, the law has no jurisdiction over you. That's the principle. And then he illustrates it from marriage. Right? Look in verse 1, just so you can see in the language of the text. He says, you know that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. The implication is, so if he's not living, law has no jurisdiction. And then he illustrates that with the relationship of marriage uh, between a husband and a wife. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, if her husband dies, she's released from the law. All right, that's, that's the basic point of it. And here's where uh, people, I believe people make a mistake when they look at these two verses, and sometimes they read it like an allegory. Okay, you know, in an, John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, an allegory is saying things at one level that has meanings at another level. And usually with an allegory, it's a one-to-one correspondence. Okay, so the slew of despond or slaw of despond, however you want to say it, all right? That place that represents depression or doubting castle, right? You know what it is. Or vanity fair. It has a one-for-one correspondence in an allegory. And they come to these verses and they read it like an allegory. Paul's going, hey, here's an allegory for you. There's a wife and a husband. And the husband is the law, and there's a death. But the only problem is, now it gets all jumbled if you treat it like an allegory. Because you die, in verses 4 through 6, not the husband. Right? So he's not actually doing an allegory, he's simply doing an analogy. He's just giving a simple illustration. Law works while people are living. 
right? So think about a marriage. If a wife is married to a husband, she's bound to that husband until he dies. Once he dies, that law no longer applies to her. That's, that's just the basic point of it. It's not more complicated than that, right? He's, he's a simply establishing this rule. Law has jurisdiction while you're alive. Right now, there's a little hint of the analogy as to why he drew the analogy is because he is going to talk about the wife being joined to somebody else, right? You being joined to Christ. So I think that's why, and, and maybe someday I'll have lunch with Paul and, or maybe breakfast, we'll share a bagel and, uh, and, and I can say, Paul, what triggered the illustration of a husband and wife? Right? I think he'd say, because I was thinking about the relationship of a believer to Christ, the union that happens between the believer and Christ, which actually is the picture of marriage. Right? It works that way. We know from Ephesians 5, the relationship of Christ to his church is actually the picture of which marriage represents. Not marriage represents Christ and the church. It's Christ and the church is the union that's reflected in marriage. So I think he's just drawing an analogy to us that, that says this is the law that governs marriage. And it, it works as long as the person's alive. All right, now let me just quickly uh, make a qualification in our minds here. Uh, because, he's, uh, because he's simply illustrating, he is not actually giving us the full picture of everything that God says about marriage and divorce and adultery, right? We need to make sure we don't turn around and take this passage and put it against what Jesus says, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, right? What he's saying is as the standard operating principle, like Jesus says, God intended it to be one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's the standard operating principle. If there are exceptions to that, who has the right to make those exceptions? The one who made marriage. Right? So he has the right to regulate it, and he has regulated it clearly with exceptions in the case of adultery and desertion. All right? So, so that's, that's the fuller picture. In fact, we know Paul can't be taking this and making it something that excludes any of those options because Paul knows that the Mosaic Law left other aspects to it, right? Even Jesus acknowledged Moses regulated marriage and divorce because of the hardness of your heart. So, so Paul knows the Mosaic Law doesn't operate solely on this principle. But it is the standard operating principle, right? We understand when there's a rule, there might be exceptions to the rule that God alone can put into it, but they don't invalidate the rule. The rule is clear. One woman, one man, one lifetime. That's the standard that God has established. And, and it's important for us to reinforce that in a culture that treats marriage with a revolving door, right? And I hadn't intended, I'm starting to get sidetracked here, so I'm going I'm to pull myself back. 
But here's what I would say to you. The reason marriage is treated the way it is today is because of the culture of dating and relationships. Right? People can attach to people without any commitment and end that commitment merely for their own pleasure. Right? They can go in and out of relationships without any kind of breaking of covenant or responsibility. And you spend, you know, 10 to 15 years doing that. And then you find yourself in a relationship which you can't get out of. Right? And people don't enter it with the kind of seriousness that it's supposed to, that you're standing before God, making a covenant to one another and with God. Okay, so it's not, it's not like a breakup, right? It's a violation of a solemn covenant before God. The only reason it can be broken is the death of a spouse or explicit biblical warrant for it, all right? The ground of scripture you can stand on, all right? So there's my side sermon. Hadn't intended to run out there, but it's good for us to be reminded so that we have the kind of solemn view of marriage that we ought to. And uh, every, um, this is the one that's, this is like maybe a qualifier that I, I, I'll I'll put in this way. Every godly person that I know has ended up in a divorce did not want to. It wouldn't have been their choice. They wanted their marriage to be what God wanted it to be. But someone violated that covenant. And that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Right? And, and so we need to have a view of marriage that holds it in very high esteem while having a recognition that in a broken world, it doesn't always turn out the way that godly people desire. And, and so we, we recognize that, right? So it's, it's wrong if someone uses a text like this, uh, like a club over people for whom it doesn't apply, that would be wrong, right? And so we need to guard ourselves against that. The basic point simply is the law holds in, in, over life. Death frees you from the law, right? So now Paul moves to the application of the principle. Look in verse 4, and the reason I call it the application, therefore... Right, so what he said in general terms in verses one through three, he's now going to make specific in application. First of all, to the believer. Look at verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. I take those two words, brethren and you, to mean he's talking to the believer, right? Paul's calling, you're my, you're my family, spiritually. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says, you had something happen. You died to the law through the body of Christ, All right? Since you died with Christ, therefore you died to the law. And that language of dying with Christ, if you... Uh, we're here through all of chapter 6, that union with Christ that included us being buried with him and raised in newness of life, that our old man was crucified with him. That's what he's talking about when he says you died to it. You've been joined to Christ, 
Therefore, you are under a new rule of life. Now, here's where the application or principle starts to get applied. All right, in your old life, you were under the law, but you died. And when you came back to life, you were no longer joined to the law, you're actually joined to Christ. He now is the rule of your life. You live under him. And, and that's the fundamental change that he's talking about here. He's grounding it in. All right. He is our head or representative. So we are joined with him in his death and resurrection, which results in rescue from the penalty of sin. But also he's been saying through chapter six, rescue from the power of sin. Right? Because sometimes, and this is, it's important to hold these two together in what Christ has done for us. So it might be that we go, okay, I was under the law, therefore I was condemned. And now I have been set free from the condemnation of the law, and, and I've been rescued out front of it. And you would be right. But it's not just an issue of your standing of condemnation versus justification. It also is an issue of your life. Do you live under that rule or do you live under a new rule? And the old rule, he'll say in a moment, could not actually effectively fight sin. But now you can. So being free from the law doesn't give you permission to sin or it doesn't result in an avalanche of sin. It actually is the real antidote for sin. It is, in fact, the thing that will set us free. Because he's talking about union with Christ, let's not miss the fact that this happens by faith. And, and go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 1, so we don't, we don't miss that everything that's been flowing has been tied to this issue of faith. 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Justified by faith. And verse 17 describes the righteousness that we have as being a gift. Notice it says, for if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one. So you receive this gift by faith. And that's why he says in verse 8 of chapter 6, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. And as well in verse 17 this is a description, I think, of faith. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. That is, you actually received the truth of God in the heart. You believed it. Okay, so, so we're joined to Christ by faith. And when we are put in union with Christ, his death becomes ours, and his resurrection becomes ours. And that death means we died to the law. We died to the law. Look at the way it's stated in verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6. 
But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. Okay, so we died to it, so we're set free. Look at the end of verse 4 now, because this is important to see what that principle means for the believer. God's purpose is that you would bear fruit for God. Notice the words at the end of verse 4, in order that we might bear fruit for God. It is, uh, it is, and I like to say this regularly for us, right? God didn't save us just to get us to heaven. He saved us to make us like his son. In chapter 8 and verse 29, it says, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So, so it's, again, it is a wonderful gift that we are free from condemnation. Right? I mean, it's, it's an incredible and wonderful gift that God has, has rescued us from the penalty of sin. But that's not all God did for us. Right? He also has made us new creatures in Christ and wants us to be shaped into the character of Jesus Christ. This is described in verse four as bearing fruit for God. And, and I don't think Paul's intending for us to, to, to sort of like figure out exactly what that fruit is, but rather just to see the, the product of the life is for God. So it could be like fruit of the spirit in Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23, right? The transformation of our character into those qualities of the fruit of the spirit. Or it could be like Ephesians chapter five, and verse 9, where he says, the fruit of the light is goodness, righteousness, and truth, right? That God wants to produce these things in us because he's making us like his son. He wants us to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. So actually, the death to the law that we've had results in us being joined to Christ in order that. Right For the purpose of us bearing fruit to God. It actually was our freedom from the law that accomplishes this. Not our obedience to the law that accomplishes it. Right? And that's important because uh, at a few spots here in the book of Romans, that's been sort of the issue, right? Chapters 1 through 3, Jew-Gentile, under the law, not under the law. In chapter 14, the debates in 14 and 15 about eating, not eating, observing days tend to wrap around the Mosaic law. And people going, no, no, you need to obey the law to grow. And, and God's answer is consistently, no, that's not the source of our growth. That's not the source of our transformation. Right? We've actually been set free from its jurisdiction. So that leads him, I think, in verses 5 and 6, uh, to come specifically to the application to the question, right? Does freedom from the law lead to sin? Right? And, and let me just, let me just uh, obviously historically, that would be the battle that shows up here in Romans, shows up in the book of Galatians. Right? Because chapter five, really, when you, you open up Galatians chapter five, there are people basically saying, Hey, if we don't have the law, then it's going to go crazy. 
right? And, and sometimes we can have that in our hearts. Unless we, have, unless we have the power of law to suppress sin, things are going to go nuts, right? And, and what we have to realize is that that question probably always is percolating in the human heart because of the tendency for us to run in, in opposite directions, depending sometimes in our own lives, but depending on sometimes our experiences. Some people tilt toward legalism, and some people run from that to a false view of liberty. So the question comes up regularly. Right? How do we, how do we control sin? How do we box it in? How do we keep it from happening? Right? And one answer that Paul's going after is against the answer to say, the answer to that's the Mosaic Law. We need to be back under the Mosaic Law. We, we, oh yes, we've trusted in Jesus, but we need the law. Right? And Paul says, no, you can't go there. You can't go that route. Because we've been, set free. We've been released. We've died to it. But also, that doesn't work. Look at verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful, sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So when he comes to this question, the first thing he says is this, the old law produced fruit for death. Now, we need to think carefully about it, because, and that's why the rest of the chapter gets a little complicated. All right? But here's what he's talking about. The power that's operative, and, I, and, and here, look up at me for a second. Right? I'm going to put old life over here, new life over here. I've been doing that, but I, I really want to make sure we're clear on it. When we're talking about the, the, what we were, right? notice he says, for while we were. All right? So he's talking about the past. While we were in the flesh... Okay, there's the power that governs the life of people who are unregenerate. They're not born again. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. It's the life outside of Christ. It's the life not joined to Christ by faith. All right, so he's saying while we were in the flesh, he's going to talk about certain things. Now, let me just show you. Uh, jump ahead to chapter 8, because I think it can help us to see where he returns to this. Look at chapter 8, start in verse 5. Actually, look at the end of verse 4. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So you see those contrasts, flesh and Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death. Right? Remember that bear fruit for death in chapter 7? Mindset in the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, Think about that just for a moment. He says, while we were in the flesh, chapter 7, verse 5. When he comes back to this concept in chapter 8, he's saying, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Right? So it's impossible for you to please God if you're in the flesh. Right? And that's where we were, chapter 7. Now notice what he continues in Romans 8. Look at verse 9. 
However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. All right, so stop and look at my two realms of life. Old life, new life, described as in the flesh, right? And that's contrasted within the Spirit. Here's a very important point we'll see several times. You don't, you don't zig back and forth between them. All right, there's people who teach sanctification like that. You know, well, you're in the flesh, but you got to get into the spirit. Oops, you went back into the flesh. That's not what Paul's talking about. You are either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. Right, look at verse 9. I mean, he's really clear. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let me, let me ask you this question. How many believers do not have the Spirit of God dwelling in them? Zero. Every believer has the Spirit of God indwelling him or her. We know that because the second part of verse 9, look what he says there. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Right? So if you say to me, you don't have the Spirit, then that means you don't belong to Christ. So so views of, of Christian growth that see us swinging between these are not accurate. Biblically. Right? And that's why he can say what he's saying in chapter 7. While you were in the flesh, right, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in the members of her body to produce fruit for death. Okay, because that's all that will come out of the flesh. Right? It, it is bound by sin. We, you know the description, right? Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about where we were before Christ, right? We were, we walked according to the course of this world, the prince, the spirit of the air, and lived in the lust of our flesh, right? All that it's in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, right? That's all passing away. The scriptures make a very big dichotomy, separation between being in the flesh and being in the Spirit. Okay, that's, that's the reality of it. We don't live our lives as sort of a, uh, you know, like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I can never remember who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Is it Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? Mr. Hyde's the good guy? Bad guy. Okay, so Mr. Hyde's over here. Peter's tipping me off. All right, so what we tend to think is, okay, I'm Mr. Hyde. I'm Dr. Jekyll. Oh, no, here comes Mr. Hyde again. And people teach the Christian life like that, right? The flesh is, oh, no, this beast within me took control. Boy, I got to do something to subdue that and let the spirit take control. And what it really ends up being is I'm back here and I've got these two things going on. Right? The good dog, bad dog, and whichever one I feed controls my life. That's not the pattern of, of sanctification. That's not the way the scriptures teach it. God has done something significant to change us. 
while we were in the flesh. Right? We're not that anymore. All right, look back again to chapter 7 and verse 5. All right? So the power that's operative is the flesh and the sinful passions. And let me make clear in verse 5, when he says we're at work in the members of our body, uh, it is, he's not saying here uh, that our body is the problem. The flesh, right, while we were in the flesh, isn't while we were in the body, because you're still in the body. Right? So flesh here isn't your physical nature. It's an ethical principle. What you could call it is your fallenness. The fact that until the resurrection, you still struggle with the residue of your fallenness. That's the flesh. Right? So there still can be this battle that's happening. And, and that battle works out through the members of our body to bear fruit for death. All right. Now that leads us to the problem. I'm, I'm just going to mention, and he's going to come back to, all right. The problem is, notice it says in verse five, which were aroused or provoked by the law. Uh, the law isn't the problem. It's your flesh that's the problem. Right? And Paul will come back to this. The law is spiritual and it's good. Problem is, we were made of flesh. So what was good became a problem for us because of our inherent rebelliousness against God. Right? I mean, it's something, I think it's a legitimate illustration, right? If you walk by something that says fresh paint, don't touch, and you're like, oh, I gotta touch it. Right? There's, there's just something in us that rebels against authority. We want to rule ourselves. And so God's law, which is good, comes along and says, this is my rule for you. And we go, I want, I want to covet. Now that I've been told I can't. That's what Paul will say later in the chapter. Right, I actually am affected by the law in that my flesh is inherently rebellious against it, and that was the problem. My my inherent rebelliousness to the law produced deeds of sin. Right, it produced me uh, fighting against it. And look at the product in verse five: we bear fruit for death. We bear fruit for death. It leads that way. The pathway of sin always leads to death. Look at chapter 6 and verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Look at chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift, free gift of God is eternal life. And James 1.15 talks about that, right? When lust conceives, it gives birth to sin, and sin leads to death. All right, there's the reality of it. And so Paul's saying, you need to understand something, that this principle that I've been telling you, that you're not under the jurisdiction of law, is good because the law couldn't do what you're thinking it could do. 
right? The law could not actually suppress the, the sinful passions of your heart. The law didn't have the capability to do that. Right? It, it is something that comes on the outside, and you need something to happen on the inside. Right? You need more than just suppression of sinful passions. You need a newness that happens that comes from the work of the Spirit. And that's what he talks about in verse 6. Look at verse 6. But now, right, while we were in the flesh, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we might serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Though it would be, uh, it sort of would be nice if Paul would have, I mean, this is, sounds it's stupid for me to say, all right, but but if, if the newness of spirit was right up at the front of the verse, you might see it a little more clearly, right? While we were in the flesh, but now in the newness of the spirit, because that's really the contrast he's making, right? And what he does, though, is he's, because he's wrestling with the law, he's talking about us being released from the law through death so that rather than being in the flesh, we might in the spirit have a newness of service. The power in verse 6 comes from the work of the Holy Spirit, that he is the one who produces the new life. He is the one who carries out the work in us. It's his presence which contrasts with the flesh. That's why I had us go over to chapter 8, right? So you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, Spirit of Christ dwells in you, right? So there's basically two realms you can live. You can live as a person born into this world without a regenerate heart, without a relationship to Christ, not being joined to him by faith. That's in the flesh. But those who have come to know Jesus Christ have peace with God because of faith in Christ. They actually have been born again by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ dwells in them. So that's actually the ruling power of their life now. So much so that in Galatians 5, uh, even though we battle with the flesh, we cannot surrender to the flesh because the Spirit wars against Right? You, if you actually live a life dominated by the works of the flesh, Paul says, I've warned you and warn you again that you will not inherit the kingdom. It's the evidence of not being born again. The Spirit is so powerful in the life of a believer that the power of the flesh has been broken. Right? It's sin is no longer our master. We're under a new rule. And that's the rule of the Spirit through the Word in our lives. All right, notice the product of that. The product of it in verse 6 is that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. And it says, so that. And that so that is like a result, Right? Because we've been released from the law and have died to that which we were bound, the result is we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. 
And that's language that Paul uses uh, very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to talk about the letter not being able to give life, but the Spirit gives life. Right? And the letter can be read, but it doesn't. It has, people have a veil over their heart until the Spirit removes that veil, and then they can see Christ and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Right? It is not intended to be against the Word. He's using the oldness of the letter as a reference to the Mosaic Law. Right? The Mosaic Law is not the rule of life for the believer. Now, there's some debate about who actually made this little, little poem up. Uh, I've heard it most often attributed to John Bunyan, but it, it actually, if it wasn't John, he should have. It was good. I mean, it's good. Someone did. It's quoted by Spurgeon, uh, actually, to another hymn writer. But it basically is this, and it, and it helps, helps capture the difference between the law and the spirit, or the law and the gospel in that regard. Here's, I think, why it's given to Bunyan, because it has the word John in it, right? The other guy was Charles, so I don't know why you said, said John. But, run, John, run, the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. All right, you see that? Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. All right? How, how can someone without feet or hands run? But the law commands that. It doesn't give those. All right? But the gospel comes. All right? The gospel comes, and here's the second part of it, Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. All right, there's the difference. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was me. The law gave me the command of God, a command that's good and holy, but I had neither feet nor hands. Did not have the power to obey it. Right? I am in the flesh, and, and, and my sinful passions would take the good law of God and twist it so that it produced actually more sin and more ugliness of sin because I knew exactly what sin was. But the gospel, the message of Christ, his righteousness applied to my account because his death paid my sin, and he poured out the gift of the Spirit, right? Now comes and says, fly. Can I fly? Not unless I'm given wings. And you know what happens? The work of God by the gospel brings me into a relationship with Christ in which his life becomes mine and the Spirit of God comes to dwell in my heart and gives me wings. I can now live the life that God wants me to live because I'm no longer under the mastery of sin. I'm no longer under the jurisdiction of the law. I have been given life in Christ and I've been given the power in the presence of the Spirit to live that life, to walk before Him in obedience, to carry it out. Right? What God wants to do is enable us 
to serve him because that's why we were made. Right? We were made to serve God. We were made to bear fruit for God. We were made to find our joy in that relationship. Right? To be able to say, I, I get to serve the living and true God. And that's what the gospel restores to us. Remember, Paul says to the Thessalonians that, that your turning to God has been a witness throughout, and other people say they turn from dead idols to serve the living and true God. Right? God turns us into his servants, which there might be a part of us that bristles against that, but that wouldn't be the part that understands the glory of God. Right? The ultimate good outside of Christ is to rule your life. But the very glory of understanding the gospel is that there's actually only one ruler. It's God. The good life is lived under his rule. The, the source of joy is living in the, in the household of God, living in the body of Christ under the head. It's serving him, not ourselves, because we've seen that he loved us so much that he died for us. And that love constrains us so that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died. Right? And the Spirit of God opens our eyes to that and gives us the power to do that. It doesn't come from the Mosaic Law. Can there be more? We, obviously, we've got to walk through this now, so I'll have to say more later about it. But let me just be clear here that when we're free from the Mosaic Law, it doesn't mean that the Christian life is without biblical commands or moral obligations. Right? I've tried to say the law, right? But, but on the other side is the law of Christ, right? We're talking about the Mosaic law, which was given to Mount Sinai and ruled up to Christ and, and now has taken its place. And as it was a schoolmaster leading up to Christ, it's not the rule of life. It's why we don't do Sabbaths and we don't have festivals and sacrifices. It's also why probably most of us have two different kinds of fabric in our clothes and aren't going to have a problem eating a, a ham sandwich later today, right? Because we're not under the Mosaic law. It's not the rule of life for Christians. The New Testament comes along and tells us what God wants us to do as obedient servants of him, but it also comes to us who've been born of the Spirit and therefore can obey, can grow in Christ, can follow him and do that. So don't pit the Spirit against the Word. And this passage means, though, that being freed from the law by the work of Christ, applied by the Spirit, should not and will not lead to a life of sin. Don't miss that. Okay, because here's the point. People want to go back here, and Paul says, that didn't work. Right? I mean, look at Israel. How well did that work? 
Right? So don't, don't go back under a system that God established as a schoolmaster to sort of hold them until Christ came. Don't do that. But also, don't run headlong into sin because that's not why Christ came and that's not what God's done. You're actually, you've been set free. You're not in the flesh anymore. You're in the Spirit and the Spirit produces life. The Spirit produces obedience. The Spirit bears fruit for God, produces service to God. And so this text is really important in helping us come back to the point that Paul was making in chapter 6. And, and I'd say it this way, because this tension that goes back and forth is one that we need to recognize because If someone is trying to establish their relationship with God on the basis of the law, a.k.a. on the basis of works and obedience, then they're going the wrong direction. They're headed toward destruction. Right? And and here's the thing that I would say, and and I... I want to say it carefully as I can, but not so carefully that, you know, it basically deadens the punch. This is the danger growing up inside of Christianity, is to think being a Christian is following all the rules. That the way you become a good Christian is by making sure you've got the rule book down and you have external conformity to what's going on. But external conformity will lead to condemnation. What has to happen is what the Bible talks about with the new birth. That is, there has to be a new heart that longs for Christ. There has to be a new life in the heart that won't practice righteousness, 1 John chapter 3 says. It actually can't ever get comfortable in fleshliness. There has to be something that's happened on the inside that's the work of God to produce new life. Okay? And, and I know, I mean, I, hopefully it's not the case because I, I go to war against this all the time, all right? But I know there's something in us that doesn't like the uncomfortableness of that. We like the comfortableness of saying, well, hey, when I was a kid, I prayed this prayer and then I got baptized. So I know I'm going to heaven. Right? Nowhere in the scripture, nowhere in the scripture will you find anybody pointing to some past event based on their decision to affirm that they're a Christian. Right? If you're really a Christian, it will be evidenced in the work of the Spirit in your life to change you. He's taken hold of you. He's given you a new heart, and that new heart has brought new desires, new sensitivity to sin, Therefore, confession of sin, because 1 John says if we don't confess our sin, then we make God a liar. Those who are born again are sin-confessing people. 
There'll be people who fight against sin because his seed remains in us and we can't practice unrighteousness. There'll be a heart that can't harbor hate for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Because how can you say that you love God, but you hate the one you can see? Right? All of those things are internal evidences that the Spirit of God dwells there and He's producing His fruit. And we need to never lose that. Yes, historically, maybe the Puritans made everybody so obsessed with the interior that they were all full of confusion. I mean, that's what John Bunyan can do in Pilgrim's Progress. He can leave you wondering, am I really it? Okay, it can happen. But short of that kind of crazy introspection and, and self-focused doubt is the real experience of what it means to be born again. Because the Christian life is an experience. You are alive if you know Christ. You're alive. That's an experience. It's not just a head game. Well, I'm going to think myself over into this area. No, it's the real deal if it's happened. The work of God gives new life. So please, don't ride comfortably with an external conformity that leaves you exposed to the pathway of sin. Right, Because unless the heart is changed, there's no answer for death. But when the heart's changed, there's newness by which you can serve God. There's fruit for God. Because God does it. What he begins, he continues until the day of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us to have confidence in your work and the power of the gospel that sees its fruit in our lives. And Lord, help us not not to be people, like has happened so often in church history, who, who merely have a head knowledge. They hold to a creed, but they don't have life. So Lord, give us, give us real zeal and passion for Christ because he's our Lord and our Savior. Would you work even this morning to to convince those who don't know Christ of their need for his work to save them, their need for his grace to be given and received. May they plead and beg for that mercy in the name of Christ, in which we pray. Amen.